got a few uh, comments this week along the lines of, wow, I didn't know Pinocchio was so deep. Um, but if you want to know more about that, listen to last week's message. This week's message um, is from Colossians 2, and it's uh, verses 16 through 23. So turn there now in your bulletins or Bibles, please. We'll look at that together. Anyone here ever tried playing uh, the, the claw machine? You guys know what the claw machine is? Claw machine is this large container. It's filled with stuffed animals or like electronic gadgets. And it has this like claw that you can sort of, you put in a quarter, you put in a dollar, and it gives you the right to like control the claw. And it's like you, 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 you make it go and you make it open um, and pick up the stuffed animal, the electronic gadget that you want. And it picks it up and begins to move it towards the exit, you know, and you're about to get like a, you know, I don't know, like an iPhone for like a dollar or whatever. But then, you know, just sort of like, uh, I don't feel like carrying it anymore, just drops it, right? And it's like um, uh, at just the right moment, it loses its grip. Even though you're trying to do everything right, you're working very, very hard to work the joystick just right. You're being very efficient with your time. and. but it always curiously doesn't work at the right time. Now, Phil Edwards is a writer for Vox, and he got his hands on the instruction manuals for claw machines. And what he found is that claw machines are engineered to fail at just the right time. It's like, it's like in the programming manuscript, the, the book uh, about claw machines is like, program it so that it only works like one out of every 20 times or 24 times or however you need the profit margin to be. In other words, the claw machine is more or less a performance trap. It promises if only you were skilled enough with that joystick and the buttons, you could get your iPhone for a dollar or the teddy bear for 25 cents. You probably just need to keep trying. You probably just need to try harder. Keep keep inserting the quarters. Keep inserting your dollars. Keep practicing with the joysticks and buttons. You'll probably eventually get it. If you didn't get the prize, it's probably your fault. And now, um, after looking at the, the instruction manuals for these claw machines, Mr. Edwards concluded, we are not the problems. The claw machines are the problem. Now, claw machines take many forms, don't they? There are other performance traps that can take us captive. They present themselves as a wonderful bargain. If only you keep trying, if only you mean well, you can obtain your heart's desire. And these performance traps keep us trying, trying, trying for God's love and approval and money and security and personal advancement and belonging and whatever it is that is in that shiny box, whatever it is that we hope the claw can grab for us, We just keep trying and working and inserting our money and inserting our time. But they never seem to quite work. They lose their grip at just the right moment. In our reading from Colossians this morning, Paul offers a strong warning. Don't fall for the performance trap. Jesus can set us free and keep us free from all the performance traps in this world that want to take our attention and make us their slaves. So how do we avoid these performance traps? We need to learn how to recognize them first. Paul himself spent many, many years 
enslaved to his own performance trap. And so he's really attuned to this. He, he's very concerned whenever he sees people falling for the same trap that captured him and held him captive for many, many years. And so he's going to describe different versions of the performance trap in Colossians 2. And the first trap he's going to um, point out to us, warn us about, is the trap of image management. The trap of image management. Look with me at Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. As Paul, the, the church planter and apostle, speaks these words to a young church. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What's happening here? Well, there's a group of very confident, very educated false teachers that have come in and infiltrated the Colossian community. And um, they're encouraging these young Christians to make surface changes to their life. And they're presenting to them a version of the Old Testament law, which is like, Try this. Try the Old Testament law. It will make you mature. This included food restrictions, like, for instance, not eating milk and meat in the same meal, or drink restrictions, variations of the Nazarite vow that Samson made, um, as well as a calendar of annual festivals, monthly festivals, and a weekly Sabbath. And the Colossians' temptation was to, to try to keep all these laws, to get on the good side of these teachers that had come in who had started to boss them around, who had started to tell them what maturity looks like. They wanted to appease them. They wanted to avoid their judgment. And this, uh, this temptation, this temptation to manage our image among people whose standards seem to be higher than ours is a, is a temptation that presents itself to every generation. And I remember this well in high school. As a teenager, I spent a few years in an image management environment. Back then, we, we used to call it legalistic. That's kind of an old word. Um, but essentially, the focus was on saying the righteous things, dressing in the righteous way, having the right haircut, not listening to bad music, um, pleasing the authority figures. People would get categorized into the good kids or the bad kids depending on surface-level changes that they made or didn't make. And what I observed in those three years is this. Image management can change us on the outside, make us look like a different person. But it lacks the power to transform us on the inside and, in fact, often backfires in that regard. It's a spiritually deforming uh, situation. So people who measure up on the outside are tempted towards pride, and comparison, and judgment. People who don't measure up are tempted towards resentment and shame. And getting better on the outside often makes things worse on the inside. And the funny thing is that image management can trap people in both religious environments and irreligious environments. It plays just on this old temptation that we have to actually look better than we are and to win people over based on how we look and how we appear. One sign uh, that we've fallen for the performance trap is when we find ourselves acting differently around different people. 
This is when we know that we're falling for the image management performance trap, when we're acting like different people around different people, depending on their standards. We switch our vocabulary, laugh at different jokes, show concern about different issues, or we act differently online than we really are in person. People meet us in person, they're like, wow, you're much calmer. <laughs> Why do we do that? <laughs> Why do we let people pass judgment on us? We present a version of ourselves to avoid this, the thumbs down, and earn this, the thumbs up. One reason that we fall for the trap of image management is because it's painful, very painful to be judged by people that we admire. And C.S. Lewis captures this temptation well when he says this, when the cup of acceptance was so near your lips, you cannot bear to be thrust back again into the cold outer world. It would be so terrible to see the other man or woman's face, that genial, confidential, delightfully sophisticated face, suddenly turn cold and contemptuous to know that you had been tried for the inner ring and been rejected. For some of us, being rejected from the inner ring of people that we want acceptance from is our worst nightmare. And so we change our dress, we change our talk, we change our interests ever so slightly. It's a performance trap. Let no one pass judgment on you, Paul says. He's got something better in mind than winning over these sophisticated uh, people who had infiltrated the church. Something better in mind. And he says this in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These are a shadow of the things to come, but man, the substance belongs to Christ. When we chase shadows, we miss substance. What were all of the Old Testament laws pointing towards? They were pointing towards Jesus Christ and him crucified and the life of the Spirit. They are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and we are fulfilled in Jesus Christ as well. You think about like what does the acceptance of other people represent to us? What is it that that promises? Well, maybe it's worthiness or security or safety or opportunity or open doors. These can all be found in Jesus Christ. He's the substance of those things, and he can give us those things without us having to perform for them. They are actually gifts. They're gifts of grace. We don't need to earn them. We can certainly exercise these gifts and own these gifts, but we don't earn these gifts or perform for these gifts. And we can redirect all of the energy, all of the exhausting energy can go towards um, something better, which is learning how to agree with the gifts of Jesus, learning how to agree with the substance of Jesus, his unconditional love for us, his blessing over our life. It's powerful, and it, it doesn't backfire. It changes us from the inside out. It's so liberating. So um, Jesus, uh, in our gospel text, talked about this, didn't he? He talked about how he actually confronted all of the surface changes that the Pharisees wanted the people to make about all the little restrictions and all the little rules. And he was like, the traditions of men, you know, that you're missing the point. What about changing the heart, the inside out, where the evil thoughts come from, where the immorality comes from, where the slander comes from? 
That's what can get you into trouble, and that's what Jesus came to liberate us from. Substance of the soul is ours. If we can lay aside all of the image management works that we're doing, that's the first performance trap, that of image management. The second trap is what we might call the trap of uh, grandiosity, the trap of grandiosity. The American Psychological Association defines grandiosity in this way. It says, it's an exaggerated sense of one's greatness, importance, or ability. In extreme form, it may be regarded as a delusion of grandeur. Now, Paul's going to sketch a composite of such a grandiose person to, to the Colossians in verse 18. Verse 18 says this, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind or by her sensuous mind. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about someone who's puffing themselves up beyond reason. Their minds seem to swell like a hot air balloon with ideas, brilliant ideas, secret insights, and and, uh, noble ideals. Their heads um, become puffed up and puffed up and puffed up, and it almost like it lifts them up from the earth. So they have to shout down from the, to the Colossians from their high perch. Hey, Colossians, I have achieved a higher consciousness than you. It's probably from all of my fasting and self-denial. Up here, I can see the angels. Up here, I have heavenly visions. Up here, I can make you or break you. I can disqualify you. Up here, I have insider information that I've learned. And this is the performance trap of grandiosity. To follow after people like that, to follow after puffed up visions, puffed up ideals, puffed up trendsetters, puffed up personas. And this manifests in all sorts of ways. Religious and irreligious. What about hustle culture? You know about hustle culture? If you work hard enough, you could be wealthy like me. What about fitness and health culture? If you eat clean and follow my plan, you'll have the body you've always wanted. What about super spirituality? If you can do the spiritual disciplines all the time, God will elevate you up to a higher plane of existence. What about social consciousness? If you can be as devoted to the right causes like we are, we will regard you as morally acceptable. Or education, if you read the superior books and earn superior degrees, you can be superior like us. Nothing wrong with education, but it can be puffed up. What about conspiracy theories? If you can do your own research and have the courage to go against conventional wisdom, you can see the real truth like me, like us, like the insiders. What about city superiority? If you're really committed to the city and its issues, You can earn the credibility to look down on people from the suburbs who are more comfortable than we are. Ministry success. If you can make things happen for God and sound godly in the process, (laughs) sky's the limit. Here's the basic message. I'm up here, you're down there, work harder or you're out. Now, there's nothing wrong with hard work. There's nothing wrong with healthy vision. There's nothing wrong with following someone's example. So what's the problem with this approach? Verse 19 is going to tell us 
Verse 19, it does not hold fast to the head, which is Jesus. It does not hold fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. What's the problem with puffed up visions? What's the problem with grandiosity? It fails to hold fast to Jesus and to the body of Christ down here on earth. Puffed up visions are no match for the presence of God when it comes to change, when it comes to healing, when it comes to growth. Puffed up visions are no match for the presence of God. Grandiosity is no match for God-given growth. No match. God doesn't give growth to elite individuals. He gives growth and he gives his presence to the church, to the church, to the body of Christ. Notice the humble language of the body in verse 19. Um, the, The body of Christ is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. And this is an earthy, down-home process of slow and steady change that happens by grace. There's nothing grandiose about this change process, about this growth process. Um, It's not based in performance. The body needs to take in nourishment like a physical body. The body must stay knit together, and the body must grow in God's timing. And Jesus is the head of that body. And... um, While Jesus is great and holy, he's not puffed up above the rest of us. He's actually humble. He's with us, walking with us in every step of our process, giving us what we need, leading us where we need to go. Um, He's keeping us in the presence of God. This is what God-given growth looks like. So if you see, you can just see the contrast, right, between verse 18 and verse 19. You know, verse 18 describes the life of grandiosity. Status, who's up, who's down, disqualified people, and puffed up people. Verse 19 describes the life of relational connection with God and his church, nourishment, being knit together, slow and steady growth. And so the question is, which life have we given ourselves to? Which life have we given ourselves to? You know, and Paul's just going to plead, don't fall for grandiosity. It's a mirage. It's a trap. It's going to take the best years of your life. Come into the church. Come be nourished. Come be knit together. Come receive God-given growth. There's no need to perform. There's no need to pretend. You have a place in the presence of God. You have a body to be a part of. So hold fast to the head, Paul urges us. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. Let him nourish you. Let him connect you with others in his body and give you growth. So we've got to beware, right, of these performance traps, the trap of of image management and the trap of grandiosity. The third performance trap that Paul's going to warn us against is the trap of false humility. The trap of false humility. As Tim Keller once said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. True humility is thinking about yourself less often. That is to say, humility and confidence go hand in hand. We're we're secure enough in ourselves that we can focus on God and others. We're not self-obsessed. Now, Paul's going to help us understand false humility, which is really a form of pride. False humility can take many forms, but one of them is when we submit to the wrong masters. In verse 20, he describes this. Um, 
uh, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? False humility allows the wrong people or spiritual forces to dictate our life. It lets abusive people mistreat the image of God that we have the responsibility to bear and to protect. False humility avoids the uncomfortable conversation that stands up to them and says, you are violating the gospel and you need to stop. And I'm no longer willing to put up with this. That's one version of false humility. It also can take the form of obeying the wrong rules. Verse 21 and 22 says, he's like going on about these rules that they're submitting to. Do not handle, taste, or touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. So what would this look like in the Colossian church? It would have looked like submitting to the Old Testament law when Christ had already fulfilled it. It would have looked humble, right? It would have looked submissive. It would have, that's the thing, it would have looked humble, but it wouldn't have actually been humble because um, it was just a way to let these people think that you're being obedient, but, but you're actually not holding fast to Christ. You, you're, you're, you're obeying something that you don't have to obey anymore to make people happy. Finally, uh, false humility can look like pious self-injury. Pious self-injury. Verse 23 describes it. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom, Paul says. An appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You know, there's all kinds of ways to look pious. And uh, one way is uh, what Paul says, asceticism, which is a, you know, it's kind of a technical word. Basically, asceticism is um, when you deny the body's instincts and appetites in order to, to achieve a greater goal. And this is just a part of the Christian life. It's a, we, we practice it even here at Emmanuel where, like, let's take, for instance, the season of Lent, which is coming up in a few weeks, where we willingly take on, you know, a, a fasting and um, more engaged prayer and giving our money away. And why are we doing this? Well, we're not doing this to look a certain way. We're doing this so that we can agree with the grace of Christ and become like Christ. But there's a, there's a false asceticism which only does it for show. You're, you're just like making yourself look injured. You're making yourself look hungry so that people will be like, wow, did you see how well she fasts? I mean... She's so unhappy, she must really be very godly, you know? Um, it's an appearance of wisdom. It's self-made religion. It's severity to the body. God hasn't called us to be unkind to the physical bodies that he's given us. He certainly called us to, to have mastery over our appetites, but not to, but not to um, injure ourselves in the process of becoming like Christ. Again, it's a spiritually deforming process where you don't become like Christ. You just become more full of yourself. You're just adding layers and layers of religion onto your ego. That's what you're doing. But it's not actually becoming like Christ. It's a trap. Now, in the past, this took on all kinds of gruesome forms, needless isolation, self-starvation, you know, going, going in weather, out in weather like this without coats, um, or medical care when you're sick. And we have our own versions of this, though. We have our own versions of this. One author 
argued that the number one addiction in America is not alcohol or drugs or sex or gambling, but problems. Problems. And his point was that um, what, what do problems do? Problems make us feel special, and they earn people's sympathy. So if something goes really well in our life, that might make us feel special, but then people will envy us and, and hate us for it. So we love problems, we're tempted to love problems because we feel special and we feel appreciated and cared for and nurtured. Uh, and it serves as a smokescreen for all the things we don't want to talk about, our real needs and real victories. And we have our own version of that in the church, don't we? Um, in his book, When Narcissism Comes to the Church, psychologist Chuck DeGroat uh, describes how this false humility creeps in and he says this, with a higher value on transparency, authenticity, and vulnerability in the church, there's a dark flip side that we need to be aware of, which I called phonerability. F-A-U-X, neurability. Phonerability, false vulnerability. Phonerability, he says, is a twisted form of vulnerability. It has the appearance of transparency, but serves only to conceal one's deepest struggles. People with vulnerability may know their type on the Enneagram. They may go to therapy. They can know all of the therapeutic jargon, making it sound like they've done their work, but they haven't actually, it's a smokescreen for actually doing their work. Here's the thing, healthy vulnerability is when we share our actual weaknesses, our actual needs, our actual feelings, our actual sins, in order to receive grace from God and his people. It's when we take off the mask and say, hey, here's who I really am, and it's an actual risk to do that. It's an actual risk to do that, but it's so healthy. It's so healthy. It's our, one of our ways out of the performance trap. But what does phonerability do? Phonerability is when we share a curated list of weaknesses, needs, and sufferings in order to get people to like us more, trust us more, respect us more. And vulnerability has currency in our culture. So false humility, really, it's a very subtle um, performance trap, isn't it? Very subtle. And it may be worth a question, just personally speaking, that we just ask of the Lord, which is, Lord, am I pursuing maturity? Or am I posturing maturity? Or, or put a different way, do I actually want to be humble? Or do I want to look humble? Do I actually want to be loving, which will be costly? Or do I want to look like a loving person? Performance traps will bankrupt us in the end. They'll take our energy, our money, our best efforts. They'll keep us from real intimacy and real relationship. The traps of false humility, of grandiosity, and image management will keep us trying, 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 putting the quarters in, trying the joystick again. Maybe if I do it like this, maybe if I do it like this, I'll finally get the prize that my heart really, really wants. Those unconscious needs for love and approval and performance and acceptance and being good enough and feeling safe it's so exhausting, isn't it? It's so exhausting. To, to paraphrase the words of the journalist, we are not the problem. The performance trap is the problem. Now, the good news is that Christ can set us free. 
The substance of what we need belongs to him. He's the nourishing source. He's the head of our existence. And he gives us everything that we need. He supplies love and significance. He supplies true growth. He gives our life meaning, and his death nullifies the power of false masters who would push us around and have us giving our best time and energy and money and subservience to make them happy. You know, at the end of the day, um, just if there's one thing that you remember from this, the performance trap for the young Christians in, in the church in Colossae was just a group of people. It was just a group of people. Maybe for some of them, it was just one person they're trying to win over. Just a group of elite, judgmental, opinionated people telling them how to run their life. And there's something so tempting about winning over people who are hard to win over, isn't it? It's like so tempting to our egos to be the one person that they think well of. There's something so appealing to our pride that we would jump through hoops to impress people who are not easily impressed, isn't there? Such a temptation. We're not so different from the Colossian church. We've got the same insecurities they did. We've got the same needs to be seen and loved and blessed. So it's not uh, only a temptation for them, it's a temptation for us. We've got to be just as alert as they were. For some people here, I think there's probably just a person in your life, just one person who embodies the performance trap. It's their joystick that you're trying to control. It's you're giving them the quarters, you're giving them the dollar bills, you're giving them your best years because there's something about them. If you could just win them over, um, you would be okay. If they would just bless you, see you, give you the security, give you, the, give you what you need, but the thing is, they're not ever going to do it. They're not ever going to give it to you. Whatever you're trying to give them is never going to be enough. They're always going to withhold what you are trying to, to, to get from them, and you will serve them until you turn to Christ, who will set you free from this person or from this group of people who embodies the performance trap. And you're trying to win them over. The problem is not with you, the problem is with the system that they are under and trying to put you under. And in Jesus' name, you are free. You are free in Christ to let people down. You are free in Christ to not jump through the hoops. You are free in Christ to stop impressing people. You are free in Christ to go down his non-impressive path of deep change. You're free in Christ to live that worst nightmare that C.S. Lewis described of someone who's like, huh, maybe, no, you're out. Guess what? You're not gonna die. They'll be upset, and that might be hard, but you're gonna be okay. You'll be more than okay. You have Christ if you want him. You have this church if you'll take her. She will take you. I wanna um, just mention that, you know, next week we're gonna talk about the practical implications of this but right now, I want you to remember and know that you're free in Christ from performing. You're free in Christ from winning people over. And we're going to have a time of prayer. We, we paused the prayer ministry uh, uh, for, for a time over December and January. We're, we're uh, launching it back today. And if you want to get free of the performance trap, 
and you want the, the, the church to pray Christ's grace over your life and to begin to walk in freedom, during communion, there's going to be prayer ministers and just step forward and let them, let them uh, pray for you. Let them um, apply holy water to your forehead. Let them um, bless you on behalf of Christ's loving church who can be like a mother to you today, reminding you that you have nothing to earn for the grace that is yours. He will minister to us the substance by grace and not by performance. So let us walk in that freedom today in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.